Hey everyone, today on the podcast, I have my good friend and colleague, Amy Lee Wicks, joining me. Um, She is an artist from New York City. She is the author of The Dangerous Country of Love and Marriage from Auckland University Press, and her work has appeared in print and online around the globe. She holds a PhD from Victoria University of Wellington, New Zealand, and an MFA from the New School, New York. Amy Lee lives uh, where I live in Northern California with her husband. And I'm excited for you to listen to this podcast today because she is at her core a creative and she has been in the rat race of hustling and creating and uh, she's really gone on quite a journey. So I'm excited for you to hear her story. Um, She had an accident um, and I'm excited to see for you guys to hear how that changed her whole perspective on creative rhythms and how to show up with creativity. So um, today is part one and then next week we will feature part two. So excited for you guys to hear it. Amy Lee Wicks, thank you so much for coming on my podcast today. Thank you so much for having me, Ella. This is a delight. Yes, this is so fun because basically we I wish we just had coffee because some of my highlights of the past year have been having coffee with you. And I'm excited to have listeners to kind of, yeah, have a peek into some of our conversations and to hear your story. So um, tell me a little bit or tell our guests a little bit, a bit about who you are. Great. Um, it's probably helpful to know maybe where I'm from and a little bit of what I get up to. So I'm from New York City, particularly the southern tip of Staten Island. Mm-hmm. I am an artist of many mediums. I act, I paint, and I write. I've spent the most time writing. So my most recent book is The Dangerous Country of Love and Marriage, which was published by Auckland University Press. Yeah. I like to be outside and inside and playing and teaching and all of the things. Yes. You're also like incredibly educated. I have a PhD oh, in PhD. creative writing from um, Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand. Mm. And I studied at the International Institute of Modern Letters there. Wow. Wow. And um, And how long did you spend in New Zealand? It was almost six years. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. So I have some listeners from New Zealand because it's very oh, close to Australia. <laughs> yeah. It's really cute because we have, um, Amy Lee and I have, um, you know, some of my Aussie-isms just because you've lived in New Zealand and I love that. It's so good. So today I wanted to have you on because, um, you did what we call a red talk, um, which is like a Ted talk. Um, with our staff and it was very moving like I could feel very emotional about it and I was like I have to have you on the podcast because you spoke about a topic that a lot of people don't like to talk about if anything it's like a a big topic we try to avoid and it is the topic of suffering and you shared some of your story and so I'd love to kind of go back and um, find out, tell us who Amy Lee was early 20s, maybe coming out of high school, going to college. Yeah, what was, who, who was that girl? Ooh, Amy Lee, coming out of college, she was wild, she was scrappy, and she loved to have fun. 
and she was very ambitious. It's funny talking about myself in the third person, but um, I had my first book published when I was 21, and that came about from cold calling publishers, which is not a good idea, and I don't recommend it, but I had one administrative assistant from a publisher who took a liking to me on the other end of the phone and redirected me on how to submit some work. So I was submitting a manuscript of very rough poetry to different publishers. At the same time, I was finishing my degree, and I was sick with mono. And wow. Yeah, I was, I was running a million miles in multiple directions, if, if you can have that image of running, changing direction, running, changing direction. Um, and I finished school. I went on and got a second degree, then went on and started my master's program. Um, and it was very much a journey of attempting to both make a name for myself in New York and also sort of figure out who I was and if what I wanted made any sense. Sometimes when I was writing poetry, I felt like I was... I might as well have just been doing crossword puzzles. Mm. And so mm-hmm. in order to create significance, I just did more and mm. faster and harder. And <laughs> Yeah. Um, and I ran the poetry circuit scene um, pretty regularly. I was performing two to three nights a week wow. for a couple of years, um, as well as entertaining and hosting open mics and things like that. And just, just really looking... Um, to create a culture of collaboration and exploration and and also to thrive um but the thriving part wasn't it was it was a lot of surviving and it was good and fun and sweet but it was also hard yeah yeah what was what what drove you for that Mm. significance like I mean obviously significance drove you but um yeah what was the motivator do you think since I was a really young girl, before I, before I, certainly before I heard heard what the summum bonum was, the idea of the good life, there was something in me that that was really driven by this idea that if I could just figure out what, in quotes, the good life was, then I would give myself completely to it. And so I think I was really driven by my interpretation that the good life looks like getting published the good life looks like success or it looks like another degree or it looks like lots of social circles that I can move in and out of Um, it looks like connecting spiritually to some source but um, I think I was it looks like spinning it looked like spinning a lot of plates to me Um, and I, I couldn't in the end, sort of the center couldn't hold, mm. um, but I tried my hardest. Mm-hmm. I did, mm-hmm. um, and I I found some success along the way, and I I made some beautiful friends and discoveries along the way. But I think, I think it, at my base, I was driven by a beautiful thing, but my interpretation of what that good thing was was sort of what took some of the energy and momentum out of me actually being yeah yeah I was meant to be yeah and I mean as you're talking about that I think a lot of artists can relate to that survival mode of being a creative and trying to make it and they're almost being 
this pressure on their creativity to produce some sort of significance or financial and I'd love to know what that looked like. Do you feel like you were in survival mode in that? Or what did that look like? Sometimes it looked like giddy excitement. Mm-hmm. Um, it looked like living on cigarettes and coffee. Sorry, Mom, <laughs> for a couple years. And it looked like always feeling this invisible pressure to show up, to mm. create, to connect, to... to be present at different events. And if I couldn't be present, mm-hmm. then I needed to push my social marketing. Um, yeah. I needed to update my blog. It just There was just a constant list of plates that had to be spinning mm. in order to, I, the best picture I have of it is to army crawl. I don't know how I can mm. picture someone army crawling with sticks sticking up out of their back and then plates spinning on those backs and they have to both move forward and they have to keep the plates spinning Mm. Um, and for me I think at the the end I didn't really see an end I just saw I would just keep crawling and then at some stage I would be able to say aha but I would I think I would still be crawling if Mm. I were to actually play out yeah what success looked like for me I don't I didn't foresee an end or a stopping Mm. point yeah but then there would be crashes. There'd be big crashes. My body would give out on me. Wow. Or I would find myself just kind of deeply introspective and feeling that what I was doing was was either meaningless or that I wouldn't be able to sustain it. And that mm. would create its own anxiety. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And would that happen when you... St- stopped and your body was like hey we can't do anything (laughs) would those thoughts creep in then yeah my body my body was talking to me and I ignored my body the way you ignore good friends who give you great advice sometimes yes until eventually it would it would put a pause on my activity and in those pauses was usually um I would just crack like an egg and and find myself um needing to regather but the only way I could regather would be in stillness and it was painful for me I I wanted to recover as quickly as I could and I just wanted to get back into mm-hmm. it uh, so I, I I was learning small lessons but I wasn't I wasn't receiving the message yes <laughs> yes I feel like um the you know, God or some people say the universe sends invitations or wake-up calls and they're subtle because he's kind. And then it's like, actually really stop. Yes. <laughs> or that's when you get like kind of kicked out of the nest, whether it'll get fired from a job or something mm. falls apart because it's like not sustainable for your body to live that in disembodied, I guess. Um, so I'm wondering because... I like to ask this question of like, what do you think your fear was? Because sometimes fear is sneaky and fear can look, disguise itself as wisdom or like, but this is the facts. Like if you don't hustle, like you're going to lose something and fear often is like, yeah, motivated by loss. What, what do you feel were your fears at that time? Are you really digging in, Ellen? This is I good. Know. 
Yeah, I... There were a few different things going on for me. One of the big ones, this is strange, I'm... Well, it feels strange to say it out loud, but it, it made so much sense from the time... So I moved from Hudson, New York, about two hours north of the city, to Manhattan for college. And to me, that was just a coming home because I'm from New York, and so... But it was both a coming home and it was also a completely foreign world. It was like being in a different country. I hadn't lived in Manhattan before. And being a child in Staten Island is not being an adult in Manhattan at all. But because my parents were from there, my grandparents were from there, their parents had come to there, I had this this invisible sense of make your family proud and carve out a place for yourself in this city. You must carve out a place for yourself in this city because this city belongs in a small way to you. But I, I didn't feel that. And so I was, I was constantly trying to take ownership of something that I felt should be mine mm-hmm. while watching people be spit out of it or finding other ways to be in it. But I had this invisible drive my my great grandmother was a burlesque dancer who mm-hmm. was taken out of school from the time she was a small child to perform in different places and sing and dance and there was this invisible feeling that i needed to create a legacy that would justify my choice to be an artist as well mm-hmm. so i worked at restaurants where i um i did teaching assistant jobs but I, everything that I did had to feed into justifying living below the poverty line at times mm-hmm. or making decisions that didn't practically make sense for mm-hmm. creating a foundation for a future of mm. success in the way most people understood it. And and so I think I did feel this this pressure to to be something, to establish something that didn't currently exist in the world, but also something that had been started in my family line Mm. generations back. And my fear was probably that I would just disappear and it wouldn't have mattered that I would find out. It it didn't, Mm. yep, I was just one of millions and millions of others who tried and just weren't quite up to snuff and none of the work that I was doing changed anyone and it really was I might as well have been creating crossword puzzles or or doodling um for all of the influence that the work would have I'm I'm like haunted since high school by this part of one of Shakespeare's sonnets when he says so long as eyes can see and men can breathe so long lives this and this gives life to thee and it was it was this idea that his his poetry could keep a legacy alive well beyond his own years or the years of his beloved. Mm. And I, someone asked me once when I was earlier in my writing career, do you, do you think like, what do you, what do you want out of your writing? And I, I thought, I just want one thing to last. Mm. I don't know why, why do mm. we want that? I, I yeah. couldn't put my finger on it. I just knew I wanted something to last beyond mm. myself. Mm. Yeah. This thing inside us that is born for legacy, I would say, yeah. or something that desires something to live on and inheritance. And I just think that that 
yeah, it lives there. And I, I, I thank you for sharing that because I work with a lot of artists who, yeah, the fear is I don't want to be mediocre. I just don't want to. I want to do something original and meaningful. And the the that can actually keep people stuck because they're afraid to even start because they're like it's going to be terrible and it's going to be mediocre. So yeah, yeah, I love you sharing that and articulating that. Um, I'd love to jump to in your story, really the inciting incident, which is the head injury. So and maybe you need to kind of give us lead up to that, but yeah, would you like to share that? Great. So. I mean, not great, terrible, awful, but also the (laughs) most wonderful thing I think that has happened to me so far in my short life. Wow. Um, I had finished my PhD in New Zealand. I was working a bomb job. Like, it was a really good job at an amazing company with wonderful people. I was learning new skills and feeling like an adult Mm -hmm. for the first time. That's (laughs) a real thing. Oh, yeah, I get it. It was amazing. And I took out my recycling one morning, hit my head on the corner of an aluminum window frame, the kind that opens out, that you can picture a window swinging out, and me from a a fisherman squat standing bolt upright. The corner (gasps) of it went right in the side of my head, which would have been like, ouch, that hurts. It bled a little bit. Um, But it it began for me... um, almost two years of concussion and then post-concussion syndrome. Wow. So ultimately, I was unable to read or write or work for a while. I had a PhD in creative writing, and I found myself for days and weeks and months sitting in a chair and thinking, I'm hungry, I should make an egg, and then looking at the clock and two hours had gone by, and I would be like, I'm hungry. I should make an egg. (laughs) And it changed everything. I started working with an occupational therapist, a vestibular physiotherapist, a neurologist, a physician. There were some other specialists thrown in there um, weekly. First, not everything got taken away all at once, which I think is a really significant part of this Mm. journey of suffering. I didn't understand anything other than I had hit my head so I tried to go to work the next day and ended up in the hospital and then tried to go to work two days later and then a week later and then tried to go on a graded return to work plan until eventually I had to acknowledge when I looked at the computer screen I wasn't making sense of the symbols which were Mm. letters on the (laughs) the Mm. screen Um, and well as a writer not being able to see words that's kind of scary yeah like I, I don't it's like I could see them I just couldn't make meaning of them Mm. you know and the beautiful thing which I think most people would say is a terrible thing was that I was kind of in pain and in a daze so in some ways I didn't realize the gravity of what was potentially happening to me that doctors were saying you'll be better in a few days oh maybe a week oh maybe a month oh maybe a few months okay we don't know if you'll ever become if you'll ever become the person you were prior to this injury anymore. Wow. Um, And as difficult as it was to hear that, what was more difficult was my day-to-day. So the, the, 
the bigness of what was potentially being lost was sort of lost on me. And mm. what I was frustrated with was I'm hungry and I, for some reason, all of these skills that I have are mm. not available to me. Mm-hmm. I can tell myself to do them. I can tell myself to feel a certain way, but I was walking around with noise canceling headphones and blackout sunglasses and a baseball cap. I had pretty much a uniform that if I left the house mm. and needed to have my full armor on to be able to withstand yeah, kind of any sensory input. Yeah. And how was it? And that feels really out of control. So, and you're saying like you couldn't fully process like the bigness of the situation in the moment, but was there any point where you recognized like where did Amy Lee go? Yes, I had. Um, as I got reading and writing back, came back actually pretty pretty early on, like it was less than a month, and mm-hmm. then I could read and write again, but not without headaches and other things. I would have, um, I felt like I went through the range of emotions sometimes within a day, mm-hmm. where I would grieve, and then I would not care, and then I would forget, and then I would <laughs> grieve, yeah. um, and then sometimes I would have a week or so where I would be really determined just to do my little physiotherapy exercises or my vestibular exercises where all I had to do was hold up my finger and turn my head gently to -hmm. the left and to the right and I would convince myself that if I could just do these little exercises right I would be given back my faculties I would Mm. I would I would have been deemed that I'm a good enough girl that I should get back the life that I lost Mm. and that was a real confronting experience to realize that whether consciously I believed it or not I was acting with the unconscious belief that this was my fault and I could make it better Mm -hmm. and I think Mm -hmm. that's something with chronic illness or injury that extends past, past a certain point there's anger, there's hopelessness but there's for me, there was also this underlying get it together. We are not okay with this. Mm. You need to just buck up and work through the pain. And the hard part was each time I did force myself to do that, which was fairly regular, I I was setting myself back health-wise because mm-hmm. the stress of it, yes, the pushing through when I should have been sleeping, the overdoing my exercises, I was further back than where I'd started Um, and it was a very very frustrating process yes it's so interesting because even in I think with pain I'll meet people whether it's clients or whatever and even in my own journey where you're like how quick how long do I have to be in this and what's the quickest way out but the way of healing and and processing pain is going slow because love is patient. Part of healing is surrender and becoming less dependent on self and being like people being invited into that vulnerable place. And it's interesting because all that frustration and I did everything right um, creates more cortisol in your body, which is, you know, creates stress and then kind of prolongs it. 
how did you find, I know your husband was there, but you're in another country away from your mom, your family. Um, how, how was it in that vulnerable space of like needing people to help? <laughs> um, first, let me just say, I wish I had had Ella beside me during this process. Cause just hearing you reflect, I'm like, Oh my goodness. To have that level of compassion and truth being spoken into that situation would have been incredibly healing. Um, so the funny thing is my husband actually was not with me. Um, this was the remarkable thing. I had hit my head and two days later my husband left New Zealand for the States. We both thought I had a mild concussion. We were not at all concerned about what, yeah. how, what this might, how this might go. And he had taken a job doing forestry in Northern California. And so we packed him up very quickly and he was going to come here for a few months. And we were excited. I was working my job yeah. in Kaikota at the time. He would be working here and then we'd be back together. And so I was, I moved out of our apartment and in with a couple of really amazing women, uh, Nikki and Lisa. and. They both worked full-time jobs. So really during my days, I was very much alone in this experience for the first few months. And then I came to the U.S. and I had two months with my husband. But part of, I think, the transformational aspect of this journey was that it was also the most alone wow. I've, I've ever felt. Wow. Um, I had a great support system. My husband would have been more than happy to leave his job and come back but we just felt like mm. we just kept thinking no this is going to work right. itself out this will right. work itself out yeah um and it wasn't until about july the year later which was july 2020 that he came back to new zealand wow so yeah that that journey was um incredibly interesting and yet i've i found these really sweet pockets, these pools of invitations to rest. And when I would enter them, when I would just open myself up to the idea, maybe I will not ever be the same. Mm. Maybe some of the things that are lost are lost but I'm here and I'm breathing and and maybe I can enjoy my cup of coffee so much <laughs> this coffee that I shouldn't be drinking maybe I can enjoy it so much more than I ever could have mm. when I got it on the run and I could sit outside and look at clouds which I hadn't done in a really long time I could take my shoes and socks off and put my feet in the dirt I could watch people with my headphones on and actually notice them. I could look around me through my sunglasses and be an observer of the world and to me suffering opened this door into a different dimension where it was less about where I could go, what I could get how I could achieve and it was more about as I gave myself permission to be, I was able to kind of just be held and be an observer and be really thankful for 
food mm-hmm. or small kindnesses toward myself, the kindness of honestly a doctor's voice when they were speaking to me and being gentle and affirming, hey, this thing you're going through is really challenging. And I was like, wow, I, mm. if you had, if someone had spoken to me this way six months earlier, my ears would have shut off and I would have been like, okay, they want me to slow down so I can't really listen to them because that's not the direction I'm going. But now that I couldn't speed up, having someone give me permission and affirmation to rest felt like, it really felt like water in the desert. It felt wow. like, oh, okay, thank yeah. you. Thank you for listening to part one of the episode. Join us next week for part two with Amy Lee Wicks.